When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Thea Linarduzzi, an editor here at the TLS, and I am joined as ever by Lucy Dallas, our arts editor. Hello, Lucy. Hello, Thea. How are you doing? I'm all right, thank you. How are you? All right. Uh, there's no thunderstorm this week. I know. It's, it's, it's a fair bit nicer. I'm feeling, I'm feeling more optimistic about this, uh, this July. Literal blue skies. Not <laughs> about metaphorical, but literally there are some. <laughs> Um, Last week, we asked listeners to tell us where they were and what they got up to while listening to the podcast. I believe I asked specifically, presumably because of our discussion of Lonesome Dove and this had sort of worked its way into my psyche on some level, uh, for anyone walking the dog in Austin to say hello. Well, James Hines got in touch to say that he was walking in Austin, uh, dogless, but walking nonetheless. So thank you very much to James Hines for letting us know that he is out there. That's uncanny. You got two out of three there. It is. Well, what was the other thing I asked for? I asked for someone in Skipton hanging the washing up. So maybe that will come next, next week. week. Yeah. Let's see. I also heard from Amy Heckathorn, who dropped me a line from her, and I quote, unglamorous cubicle in Scottsdale, Arizona, where it is 43 degrees Celsius, uh, wow. which is, yeah, a fair bit warmer than it is here. We then obviously traded pet photos as as you do um david wilson in finland got in touch to suggest that anyone with three dogs looking for literary names might take a cue from shakespeare generally quite a good person to take a cue from i should think uh, and name them after the barksome trio in king lear trey blanche and sweetheart sweetheart's very nice isn't it it is and they're they're all very they're very nice names it's just that you would worry about naming anyone after anyone in king lear that's also true. And also calling sweetheart across. It doesn't really pass the park test, I don't think. Calling sweetheart across the park. Bellowing go, it in rage. Might go wrong. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Get down, sweetheart. No. <laughs> oh, uh, Ben Hartman, just outside Tel Aviv, also got in touch. He said that he had relatively recently reread Lonesome Dove. So he shared much of Jeff Dyer and your enthusiasm, Lucy, on last week's show. That's that's very good. I'm very glad to hear that. There's a, we have another loyal listener I happen to know about in um, in Halifax who has also ordered it. She's a member of the family, so I'm not sure she is. She is an independent listener anyway. I hasten to add. I see, and not not a million miles from Skipton, so perhaps she could no, hang exactly. the washing and then and then let us know about it. Yeah, and actually, <laughs> I've only just been able to start reading again after Lonesome Dove. I really had to sort of stop for a bit. I was a bit bored actually. <laughs> Eamon also got in touch I don't know Eamon's surname so we're going to leave him enigmatically as Eamon uh, who was listening while running or as he puts it shuffling rapidly along the path around Montjuic Castle in Barcelona Uh, and he had just finished reading and had been blown away by um, Curcio Malaparte's book Caput which we we spoke about must be a couple of months ago with um, Ian Baruma on this show Um, so so he enjoyed that very much. So it's good to be able to recommend these things. And that sort of reminds me uh, that as well as letting us know where you are and how you're getting on in these, quite frankly, weird times, uh, we also love to hear what you're reading. So tell us about that too. Uh, what does that leave us with? Literary pet names, where you are when you're listening, and what you're reading. Any 
or all of those things, tweet me at Thea underscore Linarduzzi or email me thea.linarduzzi at the-tls.co.uk. Now, coming up on this week's show, Francis Wilson has been thinking about literary couples and what they can and can't tell us about marriage. Nika Ross Southall talks to us about gentrification, how it works, and crucially, who it works for. And Mary Beard has reread Fergus Miller's The Emperor in the Roman World, one of the 20th century's most influential books on ancient history, and one which has, she says, hovered over her whole writing career. She will tell us why. Conjure the image of a Roman emperor and what do you see? A hard-working bureaucrat diligently doing the paperwork until the early hours or a licentious libertine lolling about, having sex with whomever he fancies, drinking abundantly and having people executed on a whim? Of course, it needn't be either or, as Mary Beard points out. Casual sadism is not incompatible with bureaucratic efficiency. But the crude dichotomy between pleasure-seeking megalomaniac and box-ticking bureaucrat does help to distill a crucial question. What did a Roman emperor actually do? What was he like? Mary Beard has returned to the matter in our rereading feature this week, delving back into Fergus Miller's The Emperor in the Roman World, first published in 1977, and a book that left a considerable mark on her, as well as on classical scholarship more broadly, and not for all the right reasons. Mary Beard joins us on the line now to fill us in. Um, before we get to the criticism of this book, what does the reader find in Miller's book? What does, what does his emperor look like? People used to joke that his emperor looked a bit like himself, really. Um, <laughs> Fergus Miller, who's a very nice man and died sadly last year, uh, was a, an absolute pillar of hard work. And he created a Roman emperor who wasn't that kind of casual sadist having kinky sex with whoever he fancied, but someone who really was up early doing his, his letters, you know, receiving what we call his red boxes, answering petitions, judging law cases, maybe taking the afternoon off occasionally, but really getting on with the job. Now, as I say, people did used to joke that was a bit like Miller himself, but it was also probably rather truer than the, the standard picture that we get from film and from fiction, and indeed from rather extravagant Roman writers themselves, who don't notice that bit. You know, they notice the emperor's time off, they exaggerate his vices, partly because they see in them, and it's not entirely different from us and the royal family, they see in them a kind of a large-scale version of social vices and Roman vices more generally, but they don't think about the boring bits. And to some extent, you know, Miller was fantastically successful because although people didn't entirely buy what he said about the Roman emperor being a real paper pusher, you know, even Julius Caesar got into trouble because he used to take his letters to the games and the races. And while the show was going on, he would be doing his correspondence. And the people hated that because they thought it made him look like a posh boy who wasn't interested in popular entertainment. But uh, overall, you know, Miller has by and large convinced us that there was an awful lot more filing in the job of a Roman emperor than, um, oh, what shall I say, Bellatio. <laughs> right. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, right, we've gone there <laughs> then. Um, you did that in one <laughs> swift leap. Um, I was just going to say that also the his portrait of him, not just as that he's a kind of just constantly doing admin, but also you say that, that crucially he portrayed the emperor as being a reactive, responsive figure, not proactive, if we're going to do this, go out and sort this out for me. He just sort of had to do what people brought to him. Yeah, and that's um, that again went really right across both scholarly and popular images of the Roman emperor. You know, who would the Roman emperor would be sitting in the centre of Rome and thinking, I think we shall have to do something about the eastern frontier, don't you? <laughs> and, you know, making big plans, Second World War style with you know, the salt and pepper and the map and all the rest. Mm. Miller is really saying, look, everything we know about the Roman 
emperor. Every, when, we, when you look at all those byways of ancient literature where you see him doing things, not necessarily in the kind of big Suetonius or Tacitus style of absolute nastiness, but when you look at it more casually, you find what he's doing is he's reacting and what you see, if you go to the literature more on the margins of the Roman Empire, not in the centre, you find that you're seeing people saying, we've got to ask the emperor about that. You know, we're going to send, a, we're going to send an embassy to the emperor. We're going to write a letter to the emperor. We want this to be decided by the emperor. And so it's not just a mountain of filing that the emperor is buried under. Um, you also find that he is, he's kind of, papering over the cracks honestly it's much more messy much more hand-to-mouth yeah I was going to say it sounds a lot less glamorous I suppose well I mean I, I think the Roman Empire and studies of the Roman Empire are, are terribly kind of hooked here because um, uh, we both want to say look what a frightful thing this was you know built on butchery mass slaughter conquest of poor innocent natives and yet also we've grown up to think that there's a kind of glamour particularly mm. in the centre. I think the glamour is much less now the Romans themselves were kind of quite hooked on the idea of pretending there was glamour but the idea that the emperor and his small staff somehow kind of controlled the Roman world, um, they didn't have the resources to control the Roman world, quite frankly. It's not just they hadn't ever got their head around the idea of having some big policy. Um, they, didn't, they didn't have the cash or the manpower to have big policy. Mm. It's not even so much the subject that makes this, or not only the subject that makes this such an important book, it's also Miller's historical method, you say. So what was the controversy around that? Well, uh, Paul Miller got into terrible trouble and I've never been quite certain whether whether he relished the trouble or um, was a bit embarrassed by it. But he said uh, in his introduction, which he always claimed he wrote, last thing, very tired, in a hurry, he said two things which outraged people in the profession. One was, he said, look, what's the Roman emperor? Well, for me, the Roman emperor is what the emperor did. The emperor was what the emperor did. And he also said that he'd been very careful uh, not to read, when he was preparing this book on the Roman emperor, he'd been very careful not to read any sociology or any studies of Roman, of he'd been very careful not to read any studies of autocratic power elsewhere because he thought that would, his word was contaminate his own approach to the ancient sources. But I mean, I suppose much of my career as an ancient historian and particularly a Roman historian is still going on now. Those two claims were in century. I mean, people honed in, they said, look, to say the Roman emperor is what the Roman emperor did is only part of the story because the Roman emperor was also what people thought he was, what people imagined he might do, uh, how he appeared to people in their dreams, how he was slandered, how he was praised. And that by being so kind of extremely action deed based, Miller was in many ways forgetting all the kind of ways in which the Roman emperor played a much bigger part in people's lives. You know, and that's right down to all those stories that we still know about him. That, that seems quite unfashionable now, that kind of scholarship, in that now we spend a lot more time looking into popular sources and ephemera, flyers and scraps of paper and the common person's experience of the emperor, perhaps. You know, it, it was... In some ways, it, I can see why it seems unfashionable. If Miller were here to defend himself, he would say, look, part of his method w was not actually staying with very high literary sources, but he was interested in things much wider uh, than the posh elite at Rome and what the emperor did there. But he was looking, most of all, at how the emperor interacted with particularly people on the margins. The whole project started for him with reading about the relationship between the Jews and the Roman emperor and seeing a kind of way that that was constructed around embassies and petitions. And so it wasn't as if he was missing out 
the people, he was missing out anything you couldn't sort of pin down to an event, you know? So he wasn't that interested in how people saw the Roman emperor in their dreams. So he's interested in concrete history with records and not very interested in, in, in what people think about it. That's, I, I think that, that's right. And so it, it, in some ways at the time it seemed very radical because the sort of thing he did was, what I'm going to say sounds as if it's easy and I can tell you it's not, he would go through the volumes and volumes of the Roman law code. That, that doesn't for, sound at all easy. No, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't at all. It wasn't. You know, I used to say, oh, how boring. And I still think a bit, oh, how boring. But I now rather admire it, whereas in the past I was very kind of down on it. But so he'd be looking to see, so in what context, in the legal process, did you find the emperor coming in? And that was in some ways, you know, revolutionary because not entirely, but by and large, certainly as students were taught, if you wanted to understand the Roman emperor, you looked at the narratives of the historian Tacitus, you looked at the biographies of the biographer Suetonius, and you stayed very much in high-level elite literary sources. So Miller's taking you underneath those, but he's not thinking about the thought world. He's, you know, he's still being the bureaucrat. You can understand that approach. Uh, and as you say, in some ways, it's, that's a very radical approach and not, not the old school thing to do, certainly at that point. But the other point that you say that he did to not look at any other even vaguely similar regimes in case that contaminated. That's much more contentious, isn't it? Yes, it doesn't. You know, the, the phrase the emperor is what the emperor did or the emperor was what the emperor did. Uh, you know, that's, that still gets set in university exams. You know, the mm. emperor was what the emperor did, discuss. Right? The second claim about not looking at comparative evidence was in many ways more incendiary, even though it, it hasn't had the kind of longevity of argument that the other claim had, partly because I think the enemies of Miller have won on this one. People rightly pointed out to him that it's, it's no good saying, I'm not going to look at sociology, I'm not going to look at comparative material, because it will contaminate my view. Because that's to imply anyway, that you're coming to this neutrally. You know, you're already looking at the Roman emperor with a whole load of bits of baggage from your understanding of Napoleon and the modern royal family and all mixed up. And you need to go and look at those comparative bits of material in order to, you know, get it worked out in your head what baggage you are bringing and why that might be helpful or not helpful. And Miller never really saw that. Mm. Well, you are, you're, you've recently decided to follow Miller and write your own book on the Roman emperors. So how are you, what are you, are you approaching it very much with Miller's example in mind? How are you, how are you approaching it? Well, what I'm wanting to do is, I, I, I suppose, two things. I, I want to say that, look, actually, you don't have to do the history of the Roman Empire or the history of the emperor, biography by biography. There's some very good examples of people who do that. But my sense is that actually you can't, you can't tell the biography of any Roman emperor. We don't have enough stuff. And even if you could, now actually it's not getting you to the heart of things. You know, I think there's a the really extraordinary thing about the rule of the emperors, certainly for the first 200 years or so, is that actually nothing very much changes. Their biography doesn't really make a difference. Uh, and what you want to do is to say, so what is it? Not, you know, not did Nero really fiddle while Rome burned or did Domitian really kill flies with his pen? But you know, what is it that formed both the image, and that's where I'm different from Miller, the reality of a Roman imperial life. And for me, I, I think both of those are really important. And I think there is a, a kind of comparison with the modern royal family, modern autocrats of all sorts, not that royal family are autocrats. Because I think what you see in those 
extraordinary lurid tales that we have about Roman emperors and which we do puzzle about. Could it possibly be true? You know, did really Tiberius have little boys doing that to him in his swimming pool on Capri? What we're seeing is one projection by Romans, by Roman writers, Roman people, a projection about what it was and what it was not to be a Roman. So I think that if you look at Roman emperors in the imaginary sense, there is an awful lot you learn about the Romans and how the Romans thought about themselves. But I suppose the, the other thing I want to do is to say, and this is really is following Miller more directly, but I hope to do it rather perkier because Miller is 600 something pages. And it's like, you know, I, I could not possibly really say if you wanted a nice bedside read, take the emperor in the Roman world to bed. <laughs> um, what I want to show is that there is such a lot of material about Roman emperors surviving from the ancient world that we terribly rarely look at. I mean, we, you know, we think of the standard narratives like Suetonius and Tacitus who get rewritten into modern accounts. But we have amazing material, for example, on, on papyrus of speeches actually given by the Roman emperor to the troops or one imperial princeling in the beginning of the first century AD goes to Alexandria. We have the text of his speech and the crowd reaction, you know, and he gets up there and he says, I'm missing my granny. And you think, right, okay, you can start to get a very different sort of view of these characters if you expand the range of the material. You know, all this, there's stories about the poor bloke somewhere in Egypt who's trying to arrange all the supplies for an imperial visit, you know? So, you know, think about being on the other side of what the emperor is doing you know the emperor is about to come to town oh no you know you've got to get the food you've got to get the accommodation and we can actually see all this or we can see much more than people allow and so I'm wanting to sort of slightly I mean de-center those standard narratives of mm. Suetonius and Tacitus and put you know put, put some other richer stuff in you know there's We've got a fourth century emperor, the Emperor Julian. You know, he writes a whole skit taking the piss out of his predecessors. You know? And it says, um, you know, Augustus, he's a bit of a changeable chameleon, isn't he? And, uh, you know, having a marvellous set of jokes about them. And that's all I want to look at why they're funny, what people say about them, but also go down to the servants and the... Yeah, the the ladies who carried the empress's handbag, that kind of thing. Well, Mary, it sounds it sounds fascinating. I could listen to you talk about it all day. I could just it sounds brilliant. It sounds like you know a, a composite image to put it uh, to put it um, mildly. Um, keep us posted on it and 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 come on again soon. It'll be a long time, you know. It's it's easy to talk about now because I I've only just started. <laughs> <laughs> Well, good luck and uh, yes, keep us posted. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, if I were to talk about mongoose and mandrake, dobbin and kitty, seal and furry face... You would be forgiven for not immediately thinking of Leonard and Virginia Woolf, Christopher Isherwood and Don Bacardi, Philip Larkin and Monica Jones. Why do we know about, and why would we be interested in, the pet names and private languages of writers? Francis Wilson, reviewing two books on the subject, looks at what literary couples can and cannot tell us about marriage. Francis, many thanks for joining us. My pleasure. First of all, can we talk about the question that I just asked? Why should we care about these intimate details and should we even know about them? I was um, struck by the fact that Don Bacardi, for instance, who is the partner of Christopher Isherwood, is still alive. Should we be talking about their private lives like this? <laughs> well, we know about their private lives because they publish their letters, because you know we have writers' letters uh, and it's all there. And I have to say, I don't think there's a huge interest in the animal names that writers call each other, except I have that interest. And so <laughs> I kind of... The books are not only about the animal names no. that writers call each other. Let's be fair about that. Yeah. It is an extremely interesting detail, though, because they have such rich narrative lives, these little animals yes, that they imagine yes. around themselves. It's, and all, not only do the animals have such rich narrative lives, but there's such a kind of limited menagerie of animals. I mean, I'm surprised that so many, <laughs> so many writers call each other pussy. You know, right. <laughs> there there's, no, so, there's no crocodiles or rhinos or anything like that. Don't seem to be, no. Although Philip Larkin did see himself as... Uh, was he a seal? He was a seal, yes, yes. And of course, it's quite interesting. And mongoose and mandrake are unusual animals. And Leonard Wolfe also was his wife's uh, marmot and hedgehog and antelope. And so it's... But I do, I, I do wonder whether writers don't call one another animal names more than normal human beings. <laughs> it made me think of Hope Murley's and Jane Harrison's uh, relationship. It wasn't so much that they called each other animals' names, although I think they also did do that. But they had this teddy bear, um, a male teddy bear, which they brought in to triangulate and normalise their socially kind of unacceptable union I suppose and he became like a kind of a go-between. God that's so interesting I didn't know that. They used to put him on the mantelpiece and they they would refer to him and they were both his wives. I have I got this from um, Square Haunting, Francesca yes. Wade's book um, and they would bring him into the relationship almost as a mediator to make their relationship somehow more heteronormative. So in the um, terms of um, Janine Utel in Literary Couples and 20th Century Life Writing, what they've done is created some an example of narrative worlding. That's what Jane Utel in one of the books I reviewed mm. in this piece called The Story World that certain couples create. You know, they turn their lives into a narrative. They turn their lives into a fiction and they do this by kind of talking through... Um, stuffed animals or real animals. And this this is the reason why, I mean, as you made the very fair point that the, the, the material, often when people have published their letters, they've, they've made them public. And also this is, this is the reason why we are interested in their relationships. Is that right? That's what she says, because they, because that's what, that's what writers do. They create narratives. Yes. I think we tend to kind of, we tend to talk about um, writers' marriages more than other kind of well-known people's marriages because they're, what. Well, but the first thing is because there is more material, because writers write about their marriages. They write poems and plays and stories and novels and autobiographies about their marriages, and they leave tons and tons of letters. But we're also interested in them because writers are always sort of constructing their own stories. And what Phyllis Rose says brilliantly, and it's such an obvious point, but it's such a kind, it's such an important point, is that each marriage is a story for the people involved in that marriage. And so when you get a couple, a married couple, you get two stories in conflict. And normally, you know, when I talk about um, a relationship with my friends, only my story holds. 
you know, and my friends see my story as the only story. But if my partner were ever, and I don't think he would talk about our relationship with any of his friends, it would be a completely different story. And put our stories together and you've got a battleground. And that's what interests Phyllis Rhodes, that kind of, that writers have a particular way with words and have a particular deafness with narrative, which makes their stories particularly explosive. You mentioned this as well in the piece, there are two narratives and maybe they create a, a, a narrative that works together while they're as a couple. But if one of them dies, what happens then? Because then the other yeah. one can own the story or can reshape yeah. it. Yes, if one of them dies and the other one can edit the story. Phyllis Rose is interested in what uh, Leslie Stephen, Virginia Woolf's father, did with the afterlife of his wife, kind of remorse and regret, if you like. Phyllis Rose is also interested in what Thomas Carlyle did with the afterlife of Jane Carlyle. Now, Jane Carlyle, Thomas's wife, and Thomas Carlyle's incredibly wily wife, would have been doubtless a very successful writer herself had she not married one and yoked herself to him. But what she did instead of becoming a published writer was describe their marriage in incredibly witty letters. She described the kind of letters as chapters, if you like, in, the, um, in their married life. And when, when Jane Carlyle died young and suddenly, Thomas Carlyle realised to, to his genuine shock how unhappy she'd been, how unhappy he had made her. And so he sort of determined to devote the rest of his life to editing her letters. But what he did was kind of, you know, he scripted his wife's final chapter, and made her into his literary creation. This whole thing is about how individuals come together into a couple and that the kind of the nature of the word couple, the, the idea of it is that there's two things meeting equally in some kind of union. It's kind of an implied thing, but obviously, as you said, this isn't the true experience of coupledom. It's, it's never equally weighted. This You've been immersed in D.H. Lawrence for some time, Francis. This must have... This reading all of these studies of, of literary ma marriages must have set a thousand bells ringing. The novels, the everything, just full of that tension between sameness and union and indiv individuality and separateness, the kind of the, the tearing asunder of people and all of that sort well, of I'm stuff. I'm very, very glad that you mentioned D.H. Lawrence because I love the opportunity to talk about it. <laughs> yes, of course, D.H. Lawrence's uh, whole subject was marriage. He didn't have another subject. He was born of his parents' disastrous union and he internalised their conflict. And the, co the conflict of relationships, the conflict in, involved in his relationship with Frida, his wife, was his only subject. And he saw, you know, this conflict as kind of the marriage of heaven and hell. It was absolutely necessary. But he did not think that Frida had a story. <laughs> he thought the only the only story in the marriage was his story. And he's particularly interesting because he believed unusually for men, I think so strongly in a desire for freedom inside marriage. And I think that in most, if you, if you look at sort of world literature, it's made up of books about the male desire for breaking away from home for breaking away from family life. You know, it's the freedom away from the woman, the mother, the wife, the children. It sounds a bit exhausting when you put it like that. <laughs> it's, it's so exhausting. It was so exhausting. But Frida Lawrence was very, very happy to buy into D.H. Lawrence's version of their relationship. And when you read her memoir of their marriage, which is called Not I, Comma, But the Wind, dot, 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 which is a line taken from one of Florence's poems, because she can't even think of her own title. She has to use his, his words. She just not only tells the story as he told it, but often using his exact same language. You know, so this was an example of their narrative worlding or intersubjective world-making, as Janine Utel calls it. And in the, in the, the other the other book, the book by Phyllis Rose, which is Parallel Lives, which is a reprint, isn't it, of a study from 1984 of five Victorian couples, so a little bit earlier. But you say it's not far from being dated. You say the concerns were they were relevant in the 80s and they are still. In what way? 
Well, it was just, I was really interested to read this book again. I was really, really pleased to be um, sent it by, by the TLS because I loved it when it came out. And when it came out in the 80s, it was strange to say, kind of groundbreaking, given how very ordinary it is as a book. You know, it's just a, a book with five chapters describing five Victorian marriages. And she kind of takes the lid off each and explores the kind of inner, inner mechanics of these marriages. It's the Ruskins and the Dickenses and Harriet Taylor and John Stuart Mill and George Eliot and George Henry Lewis. And I remember very, very clearly the kind of the noise around it were astonished astonished that we could get so close to the oily mechanism of a marriage. I wasn't married when I, when I read the book, and so marriages did seem particularly strange, and they seem even stranger, I think, now, having been married. But So it, to get inside a marriage like that was very, very unusual. Marriage has changed so much in terms of, you know, who can, you know, marriage is not nearly as important now as it was in the 80s. And now you can have same-sex marriages, you have civil partnerships, you know, divorces, you know, everyone, you know, most people I know have been married more than once. Um, but what hasn't changed are the narratives inside a marriage. In marriages still have only one or two basic plots. I was interested to see that you say when they talked about the Ruskins, because she takes each marriage at a different point in, in a life, doesn't she? So what, so what? there's early married life and then there's midlife crisis and things. And the Ruskins and their famously disastrous marriage, she's not really dwelling on the supposed awfulness of the wedding night. She's saying, as you say, there's not many stories. She's saying he said, oh, well, she was disappointed because she couldn't change me and I was angry because I couldn't change her, basically. I love that. It's just, it's so contemporary, isn't it? I know, and there's something, God, is there anything more interesting than the Ruskin's married, uh, Ruskin's wedding night? You know, he sees her naked, expects to find a statue, something, a body without any pubic hair, is completely freaked out by what he sees. He says something in her body displeases me and displeases me and the marriage remains kind of unconsummated. But yes, I mean, she just rides over that. A, a, a less sophisticated biographer than Phyllis Rose would kind of home in on that and really sort of uh, really psychoanalyze it. But she kind of rides over that and she just says, really, the problem with their marriage was that, you know, he wanted to change her and she wanted to change him. That's all. Yeah, and uh, which is absolutely a, a kind of timeless, I guess. Um, yes. And you yes. you say there is still no better book about married life. Do you mean a literary partnership or married life full stop? You know, I I think I mean married life full stop. When I first read this book, I wasn't particularly aware of the fact that she would, the lives she was writing about were literary lives. No, I just thought they were normal lives. Re, re, they were just um, literal lives are not normal lives. Rereading it for this piece for you, I thought, well, it's, I mean, writers' lives, literary lives are not normal lives. They're extraordinary lives because writers are not normal people. But what makes literary marriages so much more, so much easier to talk about is that they've highlighted those basic plots the fact that we the fact that we talk about the male desire for freedom the female desire for intimacy that um, literary marriages are much clearer about the fact that they're editing each other that each couple is editing each other all the time i suppose another reason that literary couples literary marriages are particularly might be particularly interesting is because we have this image of writers you know in their ivory towers as these kind of essential beings in isolation so that's already a kind of a more intense version of what it is to be an individual and then that somehow has to enter into the world of mere mortals the humdrum of domestic life and find a new existence in the case. Yes, that's right. And I think, I mean, what you've said there about isolation is particularly kind of um, striking here because the very few male writers at least live in isolation at all. I mean, they did present themselves as Wordsworthy and figures of kind of sublime solitude, but they're completely dependent on the servitude of the wife. You know, what Henry James called the kind of the sacrifice of the wife. In fact, I mean, I think Wordsworth's a very good example of it. You know, before he married 
Mary Hutchinson. He used his sister, Dorothy, as his kind of, as his wife figure. And he described his life with Dorothy as a life of living completely alone. And she described it as a life of living intensely with Wordsworth. I wonder, how, I, well, you would know this, Francis, how Dorothy felt when, it, did she read him the, the fact that he said, oh, I was, it was just like living alone? Did she say, thanks very much? Well, <laughs> well she, well, Yes, she knew exactly how he felt because when she, I'll use the example of the daffodils, when um, they both saw those famous daffodils by Ellswater together and Dorothy wrote about the daffodils kind of swaying, dancing and swaying in the breeze in her journals. And it was only five years later when William was kind of flicking through the journals, looking for a subject to write about because he found kind of finding subjects really difficult and it used Dorothy as someone who could sort of help kind of spur his imagination. He thought, oh, the daffodils, I remember the daffodils. And the daffodils that she described so beautifully as seeing with her brother, the two of them walking, he then described as kind of, he wanted lonely as a cloud. And so he kind of, and so yes, she did see that she was kind of airbrushed out of this story. But of course, you know, she felt that that was, you know, that was her due dessert. Um, well, listen, from seals and fairy faces to daffodils... <laughs> <laughs> we, yeah. we could go on, but sadly we will have to stop. Thank you very much for joining us, Francis. Thank you. The streets of Brooklyn in 2020 are quite different to those of Brooklyn in 1920. Where once there were crumbling facades masking squats, now there are multi-million dollar homes. The people going about their business there are mostly of a different sort. Similarly, in London, areas like, say, Hackney and Peckham, where I used to live, would be pretty unrecognisable to someone who had left the city in the 1980s. I've only been gone three years and I can see the changes. The new coffee shop in what used to be a barber's, the expensive bikes propped up outside, a more general and subtle trimming and tidying associated with affluence with the ownership of property rather than precarious rental contracts. There's a pattern. First come the migrants, then the students and artists, then the young professionals, and then perhaps in some places, the millionaires and foreign investors. The process we're talking about is, of course, gentrification, a word whose origins are notably saturated in middle-classness and the associated sense of moral uplift, of social betterment. And this is especially troubling when the process seems to require the people who used to live somewhere to up and leave to make room for newcomers. Mika Ross Southall has written this week's lead review essay in which she considers gentrification from various angles and in differing degrees, taking in four recent books on the subject. Newcomers by Matthew L. Sherman, Us Versus Them by Jan During, a collection of essays on the aesthetics of neighbourhood change, and Alpha City by Roland Atkinson. Now, we possibly won't get to tackle each of these books in turn, so do go to our website to read Mika's piece in full. In the meantime, though, Mika joins us on the phone now. Hello, Mika. Hello. Hello. Thanks for joining us. Well, You've written a, a wonderful piece, and we should say from the very beginning, really, that though the books you focus on uh, in this review, I mean, a number of them, they cover a number of US cities in particular, as well as London, but this is a pretty universal story. It is. I think what unites all urban environments and their very different contexts is this complex, multifaceted phenomenon of gentrification. And to define it in simple terms, you could say that it's the process by which uh, a low-income neighbourhood becomes a wealthy neighbourhood. And that usually happens when middle-class people move into lower-income areas and start dominating them, colonising them. But there reaches this sort of like a tipping point after which people are being replaced. Yeah, definitely. Um, if you look at Matthew L. Schumann's book, he focuses very much on what happens in Brooklyn. And that in the sort of first half of the 20th century was a place that was pretty much dilapidated in disrepair, abandoned. The people who had been living there were migrant workers and they had taken over the very exclusive mansion, brownstone mansion houses that were once owned by New York's upper class. And once industry there declined, 
thanks to overproduction and underconsumption, the area was pretty much abandoned. And then that was sort of in the 1920s. And then by the 1940s, you see an influx of bohemians, so artists and writers such as W.H. Alden, Benjamin Britten, Jane and Paul Bowles, and apparently a chimpanzee all lived together in a house in Brooklyn Heights in the 1940s. Truman Capote rented a basement flat in a house on Willow Street, which was around the corner. And this attracted young professional couples who didn't really want to live in the expensive anodyne suburbs. And they were attracted to Brooklyn as a more interesting place to live. And it wasn't too far from their jobs in the city. So Schuerman is really good at picking up individual stories in his book. And he introduces us to a couple called the Schneiders who bought a terraced house in Brooklyn Heights in 1958 for $57,000. And they went about restoring it. And there were a lot of middle-class couples like them doing the same thing at the same time. And even though this was happening, there were also pockets of Brooklyn Heights which were suffering from poverty. And Robert Moses, who was then the head of the New York City Slum Clearance Committee at the time, came up with an idea to bulldoze a few blocks of these brownstone terraces that were particularly slum-like into uh, and create an area that was a high-rise complex that was aimed at wealthy single Wall Street employees because Brooklyn Heights was pretty close to Manhattan's financial district. But the Schneiders formed a local community group that opposed the scheme and they actually made Moses reconsider his plan. So instead there was there were lower units built and they were for families instead of just single people. Could could we also say, Mika, though, that the Schneiders, that was a local initiative of people who did live there and what they may not have delayed the process by which everything became astronomically expensive and pushed pushed the original dwellers out, but they delayed it by quite some time by stopping this high-rise block made for Wall Street employees. That was in some ways a a positive contribution. Yeah, absolutely. They, They celebrated it as a positive solution. It was something that meant that they could protect the community feel of their area. And that is something that is worth protecting. But as I mentioned, the flip side of that is that they made a really desirable area. Something similar in the same sort of time frame happens in Chicago, another of the cities that Sherman profiles. Uh, There the story gathers quite tightly around one particular housing project, Cabrini Green. Yeah, in the case of Cabrini Green, which is or was an infamous public housing complex completed in 1962 in Old Town, which is an area on the near north side of Chicago. And this area attracted young professionals in the same way that Brooklyn Heights did and around the same time. And this complex, this public housing complex was built in place of slums. So where Robert Moses's plan for the redevelopment of Brooklyn Heights was curtailed, it wasn't in Chicago. So Chicago's housing authority built these high-rise buildings. And then soon after, they passed a bill that, that capped the rent in, the, in their public housing at 25% of a tenant's income. And it was a policy that was meant to help poor people, but it actually isolated the very poorest because working class households had no reason to stay in public housing when their rent was hiked up every time they got a salary increase. So the people who remained in Cabrini Green were the very poorest who 
weren't earning much or weren't earning at all. And in turn, that meant that Chicago Housing Authority didn't have money either because they weren't getting much income from their tenants. And the effects of that were that Cabrini Green became completely decayed, poverty-stricken, and it all came to a fore in 1992 when a gang member broke into an empty apartment on the 10th floor of one of the high-rises to shoot a, a rival gang. And he actually shot a seven-year-old boy who was walking to school with his mum. And there was a lot of national uproar about this and calls on the Chicago Housing Authority to redevelop the area. And what they decided to do was to tear down some of the high-rises and build sort of mixed-unit developments that people of various incomes would be encouraged to live in. The reality of it was that they tore down the high-rises and then couldn't build these new units fast enough. So many people were having to find housing elsewhere or found themselves homeless. And actually what the Chicago Housing Authority did was displace people. So that was... It it came from an initiative to try and create social housing with the rent capping. But when it became clear that that wasn't working, they weren't agile enough to change that round. And in fact, what happened then was that the poorest people had to live at the worst place and then they got kicked out. Exactly, which yeah. makes no sense yeah. at all. You know, no. they were, no. Chicago Housing Authority is there to protect people in that sort of situation and they completely undermined that. And actually in 2001... Cabrini Green Tenants Association group successfully sued the Chicago Housing Authority for its bad treatment of its tenants. Mm-hmm. In this case, and and in in all of the certainly um, in all of the cities that you discuss in your piece, race is well in Schumann's book, race is a kind of side note. You say, um, whereas in the, the next book that you consider, uh, Jan During's Us versus Them, which also focuses, I think, entirely on Chicago. Um, race comes front and centre. Um, what story does does Jan During tell? Well, so he shows that gentrification isn't just about economic inequality. It's also very much about racial inequality. And it tends to disproportionately affect black people and ethnic minorities. And he looks at two areas also in Chicago called Uptown and Rogers Park. And these are two areas which are a little bit anomalous in Chicago in that they're more racially integrated than other areas in the city. And here he finds that the residents fall into two conflicting camps. There are the public safety groups who are mostly white and they're concerned about crime and gang violence. And they want more policing, more non-subsidised housing so that they can attract wealthier people to the neighbourhood and increase the value of their own property. And then you have the social justice groups who are mostly black and they worry about gentrification and displacement by the public safety groups. And there is very much a reason to be worried about that because the public safety groups here were using anti are using anti-crime initiatives often as a pretext for racial discrimination and one of the cases he looks at is Lawrence House which was once a very exclusive plush building in Uptown, actually where Charlie Chaplin lived when he was filming at SNA Studios. And he looks at how by 2011, this was very much run down. It was a building for low-income tenants. And public safety groups claiming that they were looking out for the well-being of the building's occupants encourage neighbours to report gang activity and gatherings of black men outside the building to the police to create a substantial paper trail associated with Lawrence House. There's this extraordinary um, phrase that I think it's the public safety groups are using. Can you explain positive loitering to us? 
some of the safety groups have come up with this practice called positive loitering, where they patrol the streets, often with a police escort, and stare down huddles of people. And these huddles of people are usually black adolescents. And they do this so that they disperse from street corners or wherever. And as During says, he quotes a member of a social justice group who talks about how he knows white homeowners standing on the corner is seen as positive, but when black people do it, it's not. Running through all of your piece, a major thread, indeed the thread really, um, running through it all is one of policy failure. Governments and, and local authorities failing to act and take charge of the situation or to take charge of it in, in a way that that doesn't quite work out for the people who need it to work out. I suppose the question is, what what should be done? Well, what is done? If we look closer to home at London, over the past 40 years or so, local councils who haven't been given enough money by the government but are instructed to create new housing have been selling off public buildings, public land, public amenities like schools, playing fields, swimming pools, to private developers. And these developers who prioritise building for wealthy buyers and investors because they want to maximise their profits are sometimes asked by these councils and government, but not always, to provide a small quota of affordable housing within their luxury developments or redevelopments. But in reality, this usually means pricing a handful of properties at up to 80% of the market rate. So it's not meaningful whatsoever. It's completely out of reach for most people living in London. And there's a really potent example of this problem in Roland Atkinson's book, Alpha City, when he talks about how some survivors of the Grenfell Tower fire in 2017 were rehoused in Kensington Row, which is a luxury block of flats. And they were forced to use an access door next to the storage bins instead of the main entrance. So it becomes clear that there is definitely a social, economic, racial divide happening in cities that is being perpetuated by governments and their lack of laws such as taxation laws, there are many loopholes which enable the super rich to buy property in London, for example. And if they don't live there past a certain amount of time, they don't have to pay tax to the UK. And that means that they're not contributing to wider society. And then that feeds into a lack of funding again. And then a lack of all these resources which are really the core of a city and a way to make the city work for everyone who lives there. There's a a way of managing urban living so that it does feel fairer, so that people share spaces equally. Yes, it made me the the Grenfell thing was a, is, was a very clear example, isn't it? It's essentially saying you go by the tradesman's entrance, you can't come in the front door. Maybe from and what you're saying about some of the earlier examples, I suppose it's when it comes from the community that it's sustainable. Mika, do you think? I yeah, I think so. But the sad fact is that it's the government who have the real power here. They're the ones who can make the changes to break this cycle it's it's unfortunately often down to the individual communities coming together but in the end they don't have as much power as local councils and the government which is an utterly dispiriting way on which to on which to end thank you Mika thank you um very much for talking to us thank you That is all we have time for this week. Our thanks to Francis Wilson, Mika Ross-Southall and Mary Beard. If you're enjoying the podcast, we would be thrilled if you could leave us a review wherever it is that one normally does such a thing. It lets us know we're not an utter disappointment and also helps to let other people know we're here doing this every week. 
Don't forget to pick up a copy of the TLS, whether in print or digitally. In this week's issue, you will find all of the pieces discussed on the show, as well as many others, including a piece on Rosalind Franklin's crucial work on viruses, the enduring mystery of why people write, the uses and abuses of ancient myths, the forgotten city of Thebes, and a paean to Essex in all its variousness. We'll be back next week, but for now, from Lucy and from me, goodbye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.